Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. The uh, We follow some of the Gospel passages, mainly the ones that the Church uses for the liturgical year. And uh, today we come to the 15th chapter of John um, 9 through 17. This gospel follows as a consequence of the gospel concerning the true vine and the branches, and um, which I think we've already talked about, seeing how that is kind of a complementary passage to John 6 and the Eucharistic texts. Um, using imagery to portray the consequences of that union of Jesus and ourselves in the flesh. Um, then, in this, he goes on then, and he talks about the consequence of that union. The, the consequence in imagery is that we are grafted onto Christ, we are attached to Christ, and therefore Christ's life flows in us, and we are all subject to the Father. Here, now, Jesus talks about the more personal um, consequences of that union. And he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my own joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is something that's kind of interesting for us in our day and age, too, because Jesus relates the love relationship between himself and the Father and between ourselves and him as one in which we follow his commandments as he follows the commandments of the Father. Certainly, obedience to commandments is not um, a highly valued uh, characteristic of modern relationships. And um, when we talk about modern relationships, we tend to emphasize each person's independence within that relationship and the fact that each person is, you know, I am who I am, and, uh, and this is who I am, and you have to accept me as I am, and all of these kinds of things. So that relationships are kind of seen as a negotiated um, relationship between two very independent and different entities. We even have have come to interpret marriage that way in in our society and in the modern world. And any of the biblical texts about any kind of uh, obediential relationship within even a most intense love relationship is kind of something that we shy away from, something we don't like to hear about. So what is this then when we speak of, if you can keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments? And I think it's not a question, actually, of willful subservience to the will of another, that's not what Jesus is talking about in the keeping of the commandments. It is a willingness to surrender. And I think that is all the way through the New Testament. A willingness to surrender to that which is greater than we are. That's why Jesus says even in, uh, in uh, John 14 that the Father is greater than I. 
This was kind of the happy hunting ground of the Aryans in the 4th century, and uh, still remains as we move further and further away within the mainstream, not within Catholic belief and thought of the ordinary people, but in the mainstream of Catholic media, Catholic communications, or pseudo-Catholic media and communications, the uh, toward a more Aryan sense of Jesus, more a sense that he's not really God. This is something we find in not in the good works of the church, but something we find in the social justice fanaticism with, from elements and components within the church that essentially um, they, they really have jettisoned the divinity of Christ. And that being the case then they reduce Jesus kind of to a moral leadership, but they use him only as they choose to use him. For instance, Jesus never attacked the political structures of his age, and so, well, they don't have to follow him in that, many people say, but we have to follow him in his care for the poor and his feeding of the hungry and so forth. Um, which, of course, is, is a rather angular interpretation of Jesus' relationship with people that come to us out of the gospel stories. No, there is a totality, there is a wholeness to the person of Jesus. He's not, he's not allowed to be the pure spirit God, which many Christian denominations want to make him, nor is he simply the do-gooder, which many Christians want to make him. He is, in fact, the Son of God, one of us, and he in, who has become one of us in order to unite us to the divinity. And that takes a, a surrender on our part of that component of our personhood, which is in the, which is embedded with this, a certain sinfulness, both we talk of original sin, um, and, uh, and this is, um, something that is a bit of a struggle. They have it in the Eastern Church, too, but we don't talk about it in the same way. Our structure of thought concerning it basically comes from St. Augustine. In the Eastern Church, they see it in a very different way, but don't deny that it exists. Um, but we also it, live in the midst of kind of what we might call um, the sins of our environment, the limitations and of our own environment in every age and place in which we're born. There were theologians who tried to interpret original sin purely in this manner of kind of the external influence. And even if they say, well, that, you know, is in potentia even when we are in utero, um, that nevertheless it's something not inherent within the human person, but which comes into us from the influences of the outside world. That's not exactly the doctrine of original sin, but it is an understanding of a nature of human sinfulness which complements original sin in its interpretation and understanding, and which certainly we have to acknowledge is a critical and important part of the ex of all human experience. So to love Jesus, to love God, to be absorbed into the vine as a branch, to imbibe of the flesh and the blood of the Lord, 
all of those things takes a surrender, not a surrender of my inner personality that the Lord has helped to create and structure for me, but a surrender from those kinds of influences and forces which keep us independent of the Lord, which keep us separate from the Lord, which in many ways can become a barrier between the mission of Jesus and its fulfillment in our personal lives. So obedience to the commandment of the Lord in the Gospels is a liberating command. It is a liberating um, proposition that we are to we are to release. um, We are to kind of untangle ourselves from the sin of the world, if that's what we want to call it, which many of the older theologians did call it, the sin of the world. That influence of the world which is alienated from God upon our thought, our hearts, our minds, our actions, all of those kinds of things. So the true love for God is a surrender of the sinful structures of our nature. That's why it's always wrong to place anything in between. We can feel very strongly about many movements within the modern world we can you know we can we can condemn russia or we can accept it we can condemn the eu or accept it we can condemn the american government or accept it we can um condemn you know um the latin american um f- religious movements or we or we can condemn them all of this all the way through but in every case for us to take anything, a political partisanship or a social partisanship, and place that as the object of our faith and the object of our worship and the determining factor of our lives is to alienate ourselves from God. And uh, there's an ancient homily, for instance, that that appeared in the Office of Readings a couple days ago, and uh, it talks about the Christian in the world, how we are indistinguishable in many ways from our neighbors, and yet we are always simply passing through. We have not cast down our anchors in this world, for we are destined for eternal life. Well, that means, actually, if we do cast down our anchors in any of the phenomenon of the modern world, if we do do that, then there is, in some way, shape, or form, a backing away from uh, a backing away from the uh, commandment to love the Lord, because it is, in fact, a surrender of all of those things, and a humble submission before the vastness, the transcendence, and the grandeur of God as it comes to us in manageable um, concepts and terms in the incarnate presence of Jesus. So that when Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, it does not mean somehow or other to be um, subjected. It means instead to surrender and to give up our attachments in this world for the sake of his presence in our lives. Because, he says, that's how I dealt with the Father, that I myself, and he says this over and again, I do not speak on my own, I say only what the Father has told me to say. And then he says, you know, that um, I do the work of the Father, and now I have kept my Father's commandments so that I remain in his love. 
That is Jesus, the incarnate presence of the Son of God, surrenders himself to the love of the Father, for that is how he experiences and that is how it works in his life. So he's saying, so he is saying this now, that I have told you this so that you may own, so that my own joy may be in you and your joy be complete. In other words, there is no absolute real joy in the world um, without this surrender to the living God. For that is the nature of our whole created being. It is not to be an independent, self-directed creature that when old age takes its toll or illness takes its toll, the life no longer has meaning or purpose and should be terminated. That's not the way we're created, and that's not the whole story of Christ's relationship with us. That those things are not the whole defining elements of our lives. What the defining element of our life is, is our relationship with God, whether that is in health and suffering or youth and old age and so on and so forth. Then he goes on to say, so this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. All right? That's kind of, um, now cast that in a different light. We don't do it out of obedience. We don't kind of pretend to love our neighbor. But it's also kind of a gauge. If we have totally surrendered to the Lord, then we gain the Lord's perspective, actually, on other people. And this is one of the ways in which the Christian should react and interact with the world that the Christian should interact with the world in such a way that they understand that every human person is a child of God. And no matter what wickedness they might be guilty of, the Lord loves them, has created them for a purpose, and invites them into the same kind of union, the same kind of bonding with him that he has invited those who hear his word, who eat his flesh and drink his blood, have. So, Then he says, well, what does this mean that you love your neighbor? What is this all about? And he said, no man can, a man can have no greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. Obviously, that's true. You think in terms, for instance, of a person and their family, a father or a mother. This is one of, this is one of the great, um, Examples of one of the newer saints, St. John of Beretta Mola, um, an Italian physician. I think she died in the 1960s, is what I think. And uh, she was pregnant with a child, and if she had to abort the child to save her life, or she could have the child and it would cost her her own life. And uh, there's a famous saying of John of Beretta Mola, um, who and that says to her husband, his name was Pietro, she said, Pietro, if you have to choose, choose the child. Now, this woman becomes kind of now an icon for the whole notion of what Jesus is saying in this gospel. A man can have no greater love than to lay down his life for his friends. Prescinding from all medical questions and medical ethic questions, this is a radical and literal interpretation of this component of the gospel. The woman willingly laid down her life for her child. And um, as such, 
she was um, she was canonized a saint, and interestingly enough, the child she gave birth to was present at her canonization. So it's kind of a it's kind of an iconic story. What does it mean to lay down your life for your friend? Well, that's a radical example of that. We have also the example of a father or a mother who would sacrifice their life to protect their children, or a husband or a wife who would sacrifice their life to protect the other one. We have examples of that all through history. Probably again in in the in the kind of the unfortunately the bloodthirsty um, modern culture where we think that the taking of a child's life is nothing. Um, the idea of John of Beretta Mola is a very powerful witness to how even in the question of uh, even what, whatever the ethical questions, whatever the moral issues might be, that the radical interpretation of this, of this commandment is, is manifested and personalized in John of Beretta Mola because that's exactly what she did. Then Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. I shall not call you servants anymore because a servant does not know his master's business. I call you friends because I have made known to you everything I have learned from my father. Now, this is an interesting thing, too. You know, this is the problem with turning Jesus into a spirit God, um, something that he vehemently denies um, in Luke's gospel when he, when he shows up um, to the disciples after his resurrection and says to them, I am not a ghost, touch me and feed me. That this is a foundation, we've talked about this before, this is foundational to Catholic faith, that Jesus is present, he is present incarnationally in the church and in the sacraments and in the word, and that this incarnational presence to us is, uh, is something that uh, is the foundation because we encounter Christ then not just as a mirror reflection in our minds of our wants, desires, and needs, but as an actual otherness, another person whom we encounter. And so often if we change God simply, Christ simply into a spirit God, then what happens? We end up honestly not so much worshiping him as worshiping the projections of our own mind and our own heart. And that becomes without the incarnation, the worship, without the continuing presence of the incarnation, the worship of the spirit God becomes many times a sense of idolatry. And uh, we find it in many of the, uh, in many of the of the the mainstream Christian denominations who have abandoned all of the mandates of Scripture. And in fact, if we're to take seriously uh, the Episcopalian bishop uh, John Spong, who says basically that Scripture is has become irrelevant to Christianity and so forth, um, probably the ob the 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 reverse is probably true. He has probably become um, irrelevant to Christianity. But that being the point, um, it's like when you have a spirit God, you are not tied to anything concrete. And that as Catholics, we are tied to the concrete otherness of the Christ as person, so that we always are involved in our relationship with him in some kind of encounter with another. And an encounter with another always challenges ourselves 
to be more open, to open up, which is what we do kind of systemically in the Sacrament of Reconciliation. We open up ourselves in truthfulness to the other in order that we might be more capable of a deeper and more profound relationship. This is one of the hallmarks, certainly, of a deep and true friendship. It's also one of the hallmarks of um, of marriage, that uh, that you come to know the other person, both in their strengths and in their weaknesses, and you love them despite that. Um, this is our relationship with the Christ. When we open ourselves up to him in truthfulness, as truthful as we can be, and this is the challenge of the Christian life throughout our entire life, is to delve deeper and deeper into who we are and so that what we present, especially in the Sacrament of Reconciliation, is the truth of who we are. And that in so doing, we learn and accept the love of God for us, not only in our strengths and our goodness, but also in our weaknesses and in our sins. And so what we find then is that this idea of a servant is one who obeys orders. That if the command is one of submission and subservience, then we are servants. If the command is one of surrender in love to another, then we are friends. And that's what Jesus is referring to, and that's what he's talking about in the gospel. And he said, you are not a servant because a servant doesn't know his master's business. A servant doesn't know the depths of his master's person. I call you friends because I have made known to you everything I have learned about my father. So I have opened myself to you. I have allowed you to come to know me. And I have allowed you to experience my presence, not only in spirit, but in flesh. And he said, and remember, who is the initiator of this friendship? Who is the one who reaches out to us when we do not know who he is or we cannot communicate or touch him? He said, you did not choose me, I chose you, and I commissioned you to go out and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and then the Father will give you anything you ask in my name. What I command you is to love one another. So Jesus is saying that it is himself who is the initiator of the relationship. And this is why, for instance, even in the work of evangelization, that we part of the work of evangelization, evangelization is prayer. I have heard people say, well, I don't understand. You know, I think the contemplative life is a waste of time. And I have, I have known of bishops who said, I don't understand what it is. I have no use for it in my diocese. And I know of priests who are against it, all this kind of thing. And yet, what they pray for, is what I think it's it's the Council, I don't know that it's the Council of Arles or the Council of Orange. One of them is Donatism and one of them is uh, Pelagianism. And I'm not sure which is which at this stage of the game. But um, basically they, def- they defined, whichever one it was, defined that the initium fidei comes from God. That means the initiation of faith, the beginning of belief, is a gift of the Lord. The contemplatives, therefore, pray that that gift be bestowed upon all people and that they, therefore, beseech the Lord to respond to the very beginnings of the whole drama and the whole expansiveness of faith for all the peoples of the earth and especially for peoples for whom they specifically pray or offer their lives. Um, that is... that. 
so that God will choose those people who are most resistant to him. They pray that those people's barriers can be broken down so that the Lord can the Lord's initiative of faith can enter into their hearts. A very important part, but also person to person. It is the evangelical understanding of the nature of kindness and understanding and compassion toward another. That it's very, it's not very often a person submits to the Lord by being scolded. That uh, certainly correction in the right mode and so forth is important. But uh, finger-waving or, or being unkind to them is not. And this is very difficult because what if you are a very strong pro-life person and you meet someone who says they're a Christian and they're, they're pro-abortion? Um, you know, that's part of the thing that makes it impossible for them to surrender to the Lord. So how do you bring them beyond that? Um, it's not, it's usually not, um, by clever one-upmanship or by haranguing, but on the other hand, in the public arena, the kind of the only way we have public discourse today is argumentation. And, uh, so we have to involve ourselves in the public forum and we have to defend, um, God's right to choose life for his people or not, and not to usurp that and not to take that away from him, not to commit over and over and over again the sin of Eve. Um, I'm God, um, not, not the Lord Jesus or not the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I will decide over the created order what is and what is not to be. We have to challenge that publicly. We really do. But the question is, what does it? How do we do that? How do we do that effectively? And part of it is we have the foundation of the contemplatives who pray for the world and pray for people to be open to the commandments of the Lord, to surrender and not just to submit. You know, this is one of the great differences between um, the triune God of our faith and, for instance, Allah in Islam. For there, it is not surrender to the love of the God, but submission to the will of a God. And those two things are radically different, which makes the difference between Christianity and Islam incredibly um, wide. And, and um, because our whole understanding of who God is and our relationship to him is different. And so we in this idea of obeying the commandments, understanding it as surrender in love to one who loves us. And that's what this gospel is all about. How do we ask others to surrender in love to God unless we ask them first to surrender in kindness to that which is good in us and in the world around us? It is so important for us involved in this, so important for us, to therefore be good, deep, and holy people in order that those who come to us and those who enter into a relationship with us are drawn into an analogy of our relationship with the Lord. Let our prayer be, as we reflect upon this gospel, that this idea of, of uh, surrendering in love to another becomes a fundamental principle and experience of all people whom we know and we meet and of all people throughout the world.
Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. The Catholic Medical Association supports your right to know. The birth control pill has been available for over 50 years. When it was released to market in 1960, it was thought to be a miracle drug that would free women's lives and improve family life. However, now we know that women who use the pill for a minimum of four years prior to having their first baby have a 52% higher risk of developing breast cancer, while women who use the pill for more than five years are four times more likely to develop cervical cancer. To find out more, visit cathmed.org. 